Thanks for being here today. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. You can go ahead and turn there. We'll get to that in just a moment. Let me go ahead and preemptively apologize for the uh, sniffling and allergies that are going to accompany today's sermon. If you have those, you just know. It's just part of it. It's, I don't know. Tried, tried everything. Taken all the pills. Done all the stuff. It's still here. Anyhow, uh, Philippians chapter 4 is going to be our text. If you are in this room and you're, I don't know, under a hundred years old, which I would guess is like everybody. Um, and if you're over a hundred, thanks for being here today. All right, kudos to you. If you're under a hundred years old and you're in this room, then your life has been lived in a time of unprecedented human stability, peace, and prosperity. Almost every objective measure tells us that what we have lived through is incredibly unique. That globally, right, th this is obviously and probably really easy for us to see here, but it's not just in our American context. This is a global trend as well. War statistically is down. Life expectancy is up globally. Child mortality is down. Obviously, those two probably go together quite strongly. The chances of you dying from a natural disaster, down. Global poverty since 1990. 1990, the number of people on this globe who are living at poverty levels was at 50%. Today, we are under 15%. That it is unprecedented, mind-blowingly increased prosperity across the face of the globe. There are all kinds of measures. You can go, uh, there's a website dedicated to this, humanprogress.org. It's not a Christian website by any stretch of the imagination. It is run with a, a very much so materialistic view on the world. However, the objective data is still fascinating to look at. That we are living in a time where peace and stability and prosperity are at all-time highs. However... Even though by almost every objective measure we can find, we are in a time of peace and stability and prosperity at the objective level, we have a weird, inverse, subjective relationship with that peace. Because at the same time that the objective measures say we are living in a peaceful time, all of the subjective measures of how do you feel say the exact opposite. You can look at this in a number of ways, right? You, you just go, at least in our context, and look at the number of people on anti-anxiety or antidepressant medication. And you go, well, what is wrong? Why are we feeling the need to chemically try to help ourselves get out of a rut when objectively all of our lives are in an incredibly prosperous setting? There are some research, uh, you know, poll questions that will show this, or you look at people who, who their feeling of their life in terms of health and finances, I think, was the, was the first one that I found, that are you in a peaceful state with your health and finances? Under 10% of people would answer yes. 2014, there was a Pew Research uh, study done on spiritual peace and well-being, and at that point, the highest rating they would give was, I feel at peace spiritually at least one time a week. That was the highest group, right? There wasn't anything that, like, I feel oh, a majority. They couldn't even get to that. It was one time a week. And it was 60% of people were at, at, up to one time a week. So while all the objective measures say we live in a time of unprecedented peace, prosperity, all of the subjective measures say, I don't know, this is a real struggle. And while my standard uh, two pieces of advice for life apply here, stop watching the news and read a history book, both of those things would help. There is a deeper problem at play here. David, I, yeah, you know, I appreciate that. As a history teacher, yeah, I get a thumbs up from the back. You know, read a history book, all right? It's always good for you. Um, there is a deeper problem at play here. Our lack of inner peace, statistically, is a a reflection of the truth that we, as a people across the globe, are not at peace with God. That there is no meaningful inner peace if we do not have a peace with our Creator. 
And the Apostle Paul today in Philippians chapter 4 is going to guide us on a life of peace. And you're going to see that it is through this truth that we are in the Lord that we can have peace with others and we can have peace within ourselves. If you would stand together, Philippians 4 verses 2 through 7 this morning. Philippians 4, starting in verse 2, the Apostle Paul writes, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all, all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we delight in the peace that we have through the work of your son Jesus. And Lord, as we contemplate that truth today, would the, the grounding of our salvation be felt in the way that we live externally and internally? We need your help on this, Lord. And so we ask and we pray that you would guide our thinking and our behavior. And would your word this morning be a light to us toward that end of a peaceful life in Christ? pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, this is a, an application-heavy sermon because it is an application-heavy text. The, uh, the heavy theological lifting has really been done, and now we get to the how does that work its way out in your life type of things. So if you've been with us through the book of Philippians, we have gotten to ponder the heights and the glories of the incarnation, the life, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. We did that in Philippians chapter 2. A few weeks ago in chapter 3, we got to look at just the, the, the unprecedented joy and value that it is to be in Christ. And as those truths take root and go down deep into our lives and thinking, they work their way out to our behavior. And that is the application that we have here today. We have an application-heavy text. Begin with a call to relational peace. Verse 2, Paul entreats Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. These are two women in the church at Philippi. We don't know anything about them except for this verse. We don't know anything about their dispute except for these verses right here. But apparently this was known to everyone else there, right? He didn't have to say, they need to agree on this issue. Everybody goes, oh yeah, Yodia and Syntyche, we know about them, you know, right? It's some, it's some Hatfield-McCoy-level stuff right here. Everybody knows what's going on. They've got an ongoing rift between them. And it could be significant. Right? We see that these two women labor side by side for the gospel. So, so it could be that they have a disagreement on a, a gospel issue of how, how to best use missions funds, something to that effect. It, it could be something of, of eternal significance that they have a disagreement on. Or it could be something entirely insignificant. The text doesn't tell us, but it really is not important. The nature of the dispute is not given, but the conclusion is they are to agree in the Lord. Be reconciled. Really, a, a more 
uh, literal rigid translation would be, have the same mind in the Lord, and that immediately brings us back, as Paul is continually doing here, to chapter 1, verse 27. So that was kind of that opening verse. If you have flipped there, I want to read that for you because so much of what we've seen last week and, and the concluding verses of chapter 3 and really this week are uh, bookending that opening section, the largest section of the book of Philippians. So 127, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit here it is, with one mind, same root word as we just saw Paul call Yodia and Sinti to, in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul is, is bringing you, it's a callback to an earlier argument in the book of Philippians. These two women, you are to have the same mind of Christ. You are to be focused on gospel ministry. This Christ-centered life that Paul has been calling the Philippians to is now lived out in relationship. This, by the way, is not the, the kind of beginning of the closing section of the epistle. You know how Paul gets to that random, like, group of names at the end. You're like, I don't know what's going on here, right? Like, every little epistle's got one of those. This is not that. This is still the application section. This isn't, I greet them, I greet them, say hi to my friends kind of thing. He is applying the truth of the gospel to a specific instance in the church at Philippi. These two women who have a disagreement, you need to be reconciled. And again, as I said, this is an application-heavy sermon. This is a, a very easy, low-hanging sermon fruit to apply this to our lives. Do you have disagreements in the church? Reconcile. Reconcile. Have one mind. If you have a fractured relationship, you are to pursue reconciliation. If you have been wronged, you are to stand at the ready to forgive. This requires gospel thinking. It requires us to put our dispute lower on our priority list than the gospel. Put our own offense below unity in the Spirit. And that's hard to do. That's hard to do because someone wronged me. I want to make sure that I get my pound of flesh. They need to feel the hurt that I felt. I'm going to just make sure they sit in that for a little while. No, I'm not going to forgive. I'm not going to resolve this. I want it to be known that I have a reason to be angry. And Paul looks at these two women and says, have the same mind in the Lord. If you were here today, if you knew your situation, whatever comes to your mind when I say, is there some disagreement you have within the body of Christ? He would have the same instruction to you. Agree in the Lord. And your offense could be 100% justified. Or your offense could be 100% unjustified or what is likely a mixture of the two. But the command is the same. Have the same mind. Be in Christ. Focus on the gospel. Do not lose sight of what you have been saved from and what you are called to. Now, this is one of those points that's in a sermon where I will get an email and somebody said, you put that in there just for me. You know, right? Like you knew what was going on and I, I don't want to reconcile with that person and you know it. And so you put that in there and let me go ahead and tell you, no, I didn't. It's, I put it in there because it's, it's what's in the text. I didn't choose it. We, we preach verse by verse when it shows up in the text. That's what we talk about is what the text brought up. So if you feel convicted right now, congratulations. That's the Holy Spirit working this morning. Enjoy that. I didn't plan that because of you. The Almighty God works that way through the preaching of His Word and the indwelling of His Spirit. So, I just want you to know, I didn't write that for you, whoever you may are, you may be. Uh, I, I wrote that because that is what is in the text. They are called to agree in the Lord. Now, we have to realize and know that 
personal conflict persists in the body of Christ, even though we are called to unity. And it persists insofar as we resist the mind of Christ that we are called to. Right? We, we already looked at that verse in 127, but you could immediately go back to the, those quite famous verses in chapter 2, 4, and 5. That you are to have, do, right, look not to your interests, but to the interests of others. You're to have the mind of Christ. And it is the same type of command here. You are to have this one agreement, this one mind, and you'll notice the qualification. You are to agree, not just for agreeing's sake. You're to agree because you are in the Lord. That is a much higher standard. You are to have the mind of Christ. The, as we saw in chapter 2, the, the self-denying, servant-leading, humility-embracing mind of Christ. That looks not just to your interests, but to the interests of others. Let, let me show you this one more time. If you're in Philippians 4, just turn probably one page to your right in Colossians chapter 3. Paul will very, very specifically name this forgiveness and being attached to the mind of Christ in Colossians 3, starting in uh, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. All right, a small list. I've got a lifetime of work ahead of me already. Then we get to verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So I have a question for you. What limits did Christ put on his forgiveness when he forgave you? When Christ looked at the entirety of your sinful existence, where did he say, I'll forgive you up to this point and then no more? Aren't you glad that wasn't the mind of Christ? Don't you sit and delight in the joy and relationship that you have with God? Because God incarnate in Jesus Christ did not say, my forgiveness has a limit. All right, complete the circle. It shouldn't be a hard, logical conclusion. What limits are you to put on your willingness to forgive others? Well, put the same limits that Christ did. Or, in other words, no limit, right? There, there's no end to God's willingness to forgive our sinfulness, and we are called to behave in the exact same way. Have that mind, church. Be that kind of otherworldly forgivers. Now, a couple quick observations here. First, we see that that these two are disagreeing, and it's not because they are two women who are immature in their faith, right? They are co-laborers for the gospel, ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They aren't new converts who had this ongoing spat that they couldn't put aside. They've been laboring since Paul was with them in Philippi. So it's not just a, a petty disagreement. These are mindful people. Second quick observation, Paul reasons with them. I appreciate this. Sometimes Paul kind of drops his apostle hammer, right? Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to the saints in Philippi, I entreat you. And you're like, oh, geez, okay, <laughs> right? But that's not what he does here. He's giving them reasons why they should be reconciled. I'll give you two of those in just a moment. But he doesn't just say, be reconciled because I say so. I'm the parent, you're the child, you will do it. He tells them why. Let me remind you of what you are forgetting in your disagreement. Again, we'll get to those reasons in just a moment. The third, I, this is just wise leadership. Paul brings in another trusted church leader. So you see in verse 3, I ask you also, true companion. We don't know who that is. Most of the commentators suggest this is the person that Paul sent the letter with. So it, it, you didn't need to name them. He, he already communicated enough. 
he puts this in the letter, and when the guy gets there and opens it to read it, goes, oh, hey, there's a little message to me in here. Help resolve this dispute. Sometimes we need a third party to help us see clearly. We can't get past our own offenses. And this is true for us. We think too much of ourselves and we need someone else to, we trust to come alongside and say, let those petty disagreements, even substantial disagreements, let those be filtered through the grid of the gospel work you share with fellow Christians. Do not let your hurt feelings or your sense of self-righteousness or your preferences be a wedge in the body of Christ. Now, let me make sure it's clear in case you uh, have showed up week after week, but you fell asleep through the first three chapters of Philippians, or if this is your first week, there, Paul is not at all suggesting there are not things worth dividing over. So just, just in the last chapter, we see Paul calling his opposition dogs, calling them enemies of the cross. There are things he's very willing to call a, a spade a spade on and say, no, 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 I will not compromise on this point. Issues of gospel integrity, and in chapter 3, what we're probably looking at is a different view of how someone is saved, or in other words, another gospel. Don't let that be something you go, oh, just agree in the Lord. Absolutely not. But you're going to have to have a little bit of spiritual wisdom to know the difference between those two. Integral doctrinal issues and potentially even doctrinal issues that you can disagree with a brother or sister on and still be in good fellowship with. It takes wisdom. It, it's case by case. There's not an easy way for me to say, here's the group of ones that are easy and the ones that you, you need to disagree on, the ones you shouldn't. It, it requires a lot of theological instinct. Cultivate that in yourself to know how and when to separate those things. And when you don't know, involve, just like Paul here, involve someone else who's wise. So we are to agree in the Lord. Paul gives these two women two reasons why they should agree. First, he reminds them of their shared labor, right? He brings this other friend in, this true companion, help these women. They've labored side by side with you and with me and with Clement, and we are gospel people. We share an ultimate goal. And, and their dispute is causing that goal to be in jeopardy or at least to be less effective. Let these two women reconcile because we are those who strive for the kingdom of God and put every other disagreement behind us, even ones that we hold dear. Even ones that you are a part of political groups for. We hold gospel issues above all of that. And we say, we can disagree on these things, but we have one mind in the Lord. one mind and Lord, because they have shared labor. They have the same goal. But second, Paul reminds them that not only do they share labor, they will also share their rest. They are fighting together, laboring for the gospel, but the conclusion, these fellow gospel workers whose names are in the book of life, they don't just share the work, they share eternity. They share rest in Christ. Whether or not you have a disagreement here on earth, you will be in Christ in eternity with that brother or sister in the Lord. I have no proof of this. I just think it'd be kind of, I don't know, cosmically, divinely funny if when you got to heaven, uh, the seating chart was arranged by those who you disagreed with the most, right? <laughs> Awkward. You got to sit next to that guy forever, right? Man, I probably should have said that a little differently. But isn't that what Paul is reminding you here? Your names are both written in the book of life. Don't miss the truth. That person that you are so angered by, Christ forgave. Christ forgave and you share work and labor, but you also share eternal rest. 
Commentator Jason Meyer writes, it's a little bit lengthy, but it was too good not, not to read it all for you. It should come as no surprise that conflict will come to fallen people living in a fallen world. But the gospel gives hope amid conflict because in Christ there are no irreconcilable differences. The word irreconcilable, translated in the ESV, unappeasable, appears only once in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3.3, where it describes non-Christians. The word literally means no offering or no altar. The cross has canceled out that word, irreconcilable. Because Christ was slain on the altar as a sacrifice sufficient for all sins and forgiveness. All differences will be resolved between brothers and sisters in Christ in heaven. Because they will be resolved there, we have hope that they can be resolved here. What a beautiful image. We no longer have irreconcilable differences because we have Christ. That is for people who don't have the altar, who don't have the offering of the, the perfect Lamb of God. Church, we are called to relational peace. Second, we are called to inner peace. Now, I'm uh, going to go out on a little bit of an exegetical limb here. Uh, most of the commentators suggest that what happens in verses 4 through 7 are just kind of in, in, in musical terms, staccato commands. They just kind of rapid fire things you should do. Um, however, everyone agrees that they're closely related. I think they're a little more closely related than what most of the, the scholars would suggest. Let me, I'll try to give you that reason. Either way, if I'm wrong on this, it really doesn't change a whole lot in terms of how you are to live. It just changes a little bit in how you... Uh, organize and outline a sermon really is what that does so i i'm putting these under one umbrella you can go ahead and, and disagree with that if you so choose the command stands regardless we are called to have inner peace but by, by the way before i get on to the text some of this depends on where you put these uh section headings so if you have an esv you'll see that the section heading starts in four verse two some other translation committees put it in four verse one Right, it, it just, it, it's a little bit of preference and debate on what the, the linguistics would suggest. So I'm going to suggest to you, I, we organized it with uh, the ESV agreeing with that, that, that these verses go together, that there is a, a stronger connection here than some would apply. So there's a call to inner peace, and we'll kind of get to that call. We'll back our way into it through three commands. First, you're commanded to pursue joy, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Paul doesn't want you to miss that one. At one level, right, when I see this, it feels like an unnecessary command. It's an add-on. It feels unnecessary because we who have had our sins forgiven should not have to be told to have joy. Right? That's just, that's just the natural disposition of a Christian. We are joyous because of who we are. We've been made new in Christ. To tell a Christian to have joy, it's like telling Clint Eastwood to be cool. You're like, you don't really have to do it. It just is. But so frequently, we lose sight of the, the hope that we have in Christ. We forget. It's part of the reason why Christ tells us, regularly come to the Lord's table to remember. Because we are oh so forgetful. Other things crowd out our vision, and so Paul has to come along and tell us, don't forget you, and, and you'll notice, you are in the Lord, right? Rejoice in the Lord. It's not just an empty command to have joy because joy is a good thing. It's not joy for the sake of joy. It is joy that is derived from your salvation in Christ. Because of what you have, you are to be joyful. Church, have joy. Have great joy. Think and dwell upon the salvation you have in Christ and let the natural overflow of that thought process bring joy to your life. It will fill you up. It's not difficult for us to access joy. It should be right there, ready to be 
brought to the surface at any given moment because in Christ we have an eternal hope regardless of our temporary circumstances. We have an untouchable joy. Let me, let me try to show you this in a couple other places just to try and nail it down. We'll go to the Old Testament first, Nehemiah chapter 8. If you're using a, a Bible in the chairs, page 404. After Ezra, before Job, or Esther, <laughs> Esther, Job, yeah, there we go. In between Ezra and Esther, there we go. Nehemiah chapter 8. This is the passage where they find the book of the law, right? These are the exiles, they've, they've been gone for a while, they were conquered brought away. These are now God's people, the Israelites who've returned, and they, they find the book of the law. Ezra brings it out, and he reads to them. They gather around these, these gates they finally built, and the wall is finished, and they pull out the book. And in verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Let me call that to you. They preached. Ezra gave a sermon. He read the book and explained it so the people understood. In verse 9, And Nehemiah was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. If you jump down, all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions to make great rejoicing because they had understood that the words that were declared to them. Now, I want, I want you to know, what they understood was a, a portion of what you and I have as people on the other side of the cross. Their hope in, in the truth that they are people of the law, that God will bring about redemption somehow permanently for them, their anticipatory hope is just a fraction of what we now, we don't look forward to, we look back to and say, God has fulfilled that for us. And yet, even them, they, the word is read and given an understanding, and as that takes hold in their thinking, joy is the result. The priests and scribes read the law, they explain it to the people, and they have great rejoicing because they understood. That is what we are called. If you understand who you are in Christ, it is not hard to have joy. It is just who you are. Let me show it to you in the New Testament, if you will. 1 Peter chapter 1. Same idea, this time on the other side of that, that cross, that pivotal moment of redemptive history. Here we have Christians who are called to joy, and it's not hope in the law. Instead, it's hope in the, the conclusion, the fulfillment of the law, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. This is Christ, by the way. The, the pronoun there is referring to Jesus. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Church, do you know what you have? Do you know the inexpressible wealth of the riches of salvation that is yours in Christ Jesus? If so, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. As a Christian, it is always rejoicing season. Joy is evergreen for those who are in Christ. 
Because regardless of the circumstances of this temporal life, we have an eternal one that is held secure in the hand of God. Now you might look at that and you go, yes, but Paul doesn't know what I'm going through, right? He doesn't know the hardships that I have. How could I rejoice in the midst of my pain? And I'm not, I don't want to try to shortchange your pain. There are seasons where this is very difficult. But let me just remind you for a moment, Paul is writing this to them from prison where capital punishment is a possibility. And he looks at them and says, have joy, right? Troy reminded us this morning that in Acts chapter 16, when he is with them in Philippi, he is in prison singing to the praises of God. The earthquake comes, the gates are flown open. He goes, I'll stay. (laughs) I'm just feeling so good. Is there anything better than the joy we have in Christ? It is so dominant in the life of Paul that there is nothing that can take it away. In fact, if you're in 1 Peter, I can't leave without reading it to you. Let me jump back up to verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is why you rejoice, right? Verse 6, in this rejoice. You are in the Lord Fight hard for joy. Remind yourself of what you have in Christ and let that truth lead you to joy. Letter B, the second stop on our path to inner peace, we are called to lead with gentleness. So if we're back in Philippians chapter 4, let me get there. Not only are you you to rejoice in the Lord, but verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, the, the translation here, I've, I've never been in a room with the translation committee. I know uh, so little Greek, it's not fair that I, I would not be able to uh, correct. This one sit, still seems funny to me. Everywhere else in the New Testament this word shows up, the ESV translates it gentleness. Sometimes I think they're just like, yeah, we need to do something different. I don't know. Let's just try another one. So they, they translate it reasonableness. But everywhere else, and if you want to go look them up, uh, uh, here's 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, 1 Peter 2.18, James 3.17, 2 Corinthians 10.1, Titus 3.2. Every time it's translated gentleness. And the more literal translation would be a lack of conflict. And an intentional disposition that leads with peace, if you will. It is not combative, it is peaceful. You are to be gentle. Let your gentleness be known to all. The, the idea of reasonableness here is that you don't jump to warlike conclusions. You sit and you think and you reason and you understand. You are peaceful in the way you approach and you're gentle in your conversation and your disagreements. Let it be known to all, and once again we see why the Lord is at hand. We are called to a disposition of peace. Again, this is one of the reasons why I think these are more closely tied together, why this is three commands building to a conclusion here, to rejoice, to be gentle, and then we'll get to the third one in just a moment, all leading to this inner peace. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with somebody, right, where you came in loaded. You were, you were ready to unleash hell's fury on that person who has wronged you and you sat down and they started hey i really i need to apologize for something i did and you go oh man (laughs) they just disarmed you right away like i wanted to ah, okay go ahead yeah i guess i don't i don't get to pour out my righteous wrath that is the picture here gentleness reasonableness someone who says let, let me try and do everything i can to disarm whether it's justified or not your frustration. Let your gentleness be known. Let me show you this in action. Do I have time? Probably not. Let's do it anyways. Romans 12. If you have a Bible, a little bit to your left, page 948 for using one in the chairs. Romans 12 is uh, coming out of the great, you know, the salvation that is 
detailed, more uh, granularly in chapters 1 through 8 of Romans than any other place in the Bible, this great glorious theology. We then have this question of Israel in chapters 9, 10, and 11, and then Romans 12, we get to the application of that, that salvation. And in Romans 12, starting in verse 9, I think, again, this is a, a, a not, I'm not quite out on an exegetical limb here. Most people agree with this, but there's some dispute. I think everything that follows after verse 9 is an ex- explanation of the first phrase, let love be genuine. So everything that flows from there is a description of genuine love. And by verse 14, you get to this, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Keep going here. This is, this is such an, an impressive high bar of disagreement, right? Those who are cursing you, you're a blessing. What else do you do? Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I love this picture. It helps us know, even if you're right and that person was 100% wrong, you and I are not wise enough to dole out justice in a way that doesn't lean towards righteous indignation. You don't You don't have the ability to not overdo it on the justice side because you were angry with that person. And so what are you to do? You are to trust that God will handle that. You are to lead with peace. Look at the conclusion in verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him something to drink. By doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So as we try to to wield justice in our feeble hands, we will inevitably fall into wickedness. And so what are you called? What are you called to do? Live at peace with all. Lead with gentleness. We do not possess the wisdom required to administer justice without bias. So we lead with a disposition of forgiveness, of gentleness, and one that results in peace. All right, so that's point two, or sub-point two, on our call, this road to inner peace. We are first to pursue joy. We're second to lead with gentleness. We're back in Philippians chapter four. Third, we are to trust God. Rejoice in the Lord. Let your reasonableness be known to all. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. Just let that linger for a moment. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You struggle with anxiety? As soon as as a question mark shows up, this unknown of what the future may hold or what is happening even in the present, are you full of anxiety? Because if so, we have to confront the hard truth that right underneath that thin layer of anxiety is at some level a mistrust of God. You either don't trust that He is sovereign and in control of all things, or you don't trust that He actually will bring about what is good for you. You have to peck away at one of those two doctrinal truths in order to let anxiety be a predominant component of your life. What we are called to is not to be anxious, but to trust God in everything, and prayer and supplication, really synonyms there, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Church, if you are anxious, you are not to just go, well, you know, that's how God made me. Okay, I guess I'll just be anxious. Absolutely not. Do not make peace with your anxiety. You are to make war with your anxiety, and you are to do so by prayer and thankfulness and a deep understanding of what God has done for you. You think about what happens when you pray. And we'll see here, 
thankfulness is, don't underestimate the role of thankfulness in your fight against anxiety. You think about what happens when you pray. You, you, O little insignificant one, stand at the throne of the almighty creator and sustainer of the universe. And somehow you are allowed an audience. You ever, I don't know if you've ever tried to get a meeting with somebody who's more important than you are. It's difficult, right? You've got like three layers of secretaries that are keeping you out. It is their job to make sure you are not given access. That person's time is too important, too valuable, too significant for you to show up and try to distract them. And yet, the God of the universe that knows and holds all things invites you in. That in and of itself should, if you think rightly about that, help you with your anxiety. That God allows me to come near. There is hope in that in and of itself. But not only does He allow you to come near, you are able to come near and then you are invited to bring any of your concerns to Him. How mind-blowing is that? I have, I have four children. It's not infrequent that uh, they'll want to talk to me about something and go, is this something that you actually need an adult for? I don't think it is, right? I need you to go f solve that on your own. Go figure it out, kid. Good luck. Right? Don't tell me. You know what I'm talking about. Don't, don't leave me hanging out here. We all know. How many times can they interrupt me, right? Ma, 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 what? I dropped my shoe. Okay, pick up the shoe, right? <sighs> Sorry, uh, do you need me to hit? No, okay, do I really need to do that for you? Are we that much different before God? Are we that much different than a little child with something so insignificant? We go, why? Why would you bring that before God? And God doesn't go figure it out on your own. What does he say? Bring it. I want to hear I want to know what is ailing you all the way down to the little details. Present all of your concerns to God. You are to fight your anxiety with a thankfulness and prayer. Just, just that He would listen to you. Again, on that thankfulness part, if you flip over to Romans chapter, actually don't flip, you don't have time, but Romans chapter 1, you see, right, this, this, there's a description of, of the righteous and the unrighteous, and what happens to the unrighteous, verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So it's not just a rejection of who God is, it's a lack of thankfulness that leads to unbelief. And here we have the exact opposite. Prayerfully, you come before God, and that prayer, again, if you think rightly about it, is going to produce some thankfulness. And those two things in and of themselves will help with your anxiety if you're thinking rightly. Through prayer and thankfulness and a deep understanding and a trust of God, you are to fight against these things. This inner turmoil, once again, bringing us back to why I think all these things are connected. We're told to rejoice and then have thanksgiving and all of it about this inner turmoil, this let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to all, this uh, without which, right, this disposition of conflict is to be the antithesis of that. All three of these things build, in my opinion, to this conclusion, verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The third point is the grounds for your peace. We have a call to relational peace. We've had a call to inner peace. And then we have a conclusion. The reason why. The reason why you can have inner peace, the reason why you can have relational peace is because you have not a peace that is of your own. It is the peace of God that is in Christ Jesus. 
It's not something that is produced or sustained or maintained by your willpower. Ultimately, your peaceful life is grounded in the truth that you have a peaceful afterlife. That we are united with Christ and the inner and outer peace that we desire is derived from a spiritual peace that is only one in Christ. In some ways, I have uh, unfairly misrepresented the expectation for you this morning. Right? I started out by saying, the, the world is, all, everything's going well. Why are we so, do we lack peace? And the reality should be the exact opposite. The question should not be, why don't we have peace? The question should be, why don't we have war? Because <laughs> that is our natural disposition. We have no need, there's no excuse. We don't need any reason to be at conflict with each other. You can have any reason or no reason. Again, as always, I invite you to any two-year-old classroom at any point in any time, anywhere. This is the most violent place in the world. There's a classroom full of two-year-olds. They're just not very good at the violence yet. But ingrained into us is conflict. We are, by nature, hell-raisers, selfish, prideful, insecure, combative. War is in our blood. The question is not, why aren't we peaceful? The question should be, how is anyone peaceful? And the answer comes to us. We are peaceful only through the peace of God that is given to us in Christ. The reason we can have peace with each other, the reason we can have peace internally with ourselves, is because we are no longer in the human default position that that old self, the standard setting of conflict, that went away because you have been made new in Christ. And if you are new in Christ, you are a new creation. The life you live is not yours, it is yours in Christ Jesus. And this is a life that produces relational peace and inner peace because it is lived with the secure knowledge that you are at peace with God. And so we see, what is this conclusion? The peace of God guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. So we look forward to heaven and the peace that will come there, but we also need to remember that we possess all of the tools to bring about peace in our lives here and now. That in this warlike world, peace has already burst onto the scene, quite ironically, at the violent foot of the cross. And it is there in Christ that we are able to find a peaceful life. And if you are not in Christ, if you have not repented and believed, this is one of the great and grand and glorious byproducts of our salvation. That you can be at peace internally and with God. And I invite you to repent and receive Him today and delight in the joy of having a peaceful life. Because the, the standard position of human conflict cannot stand against the peace of Christ in the same way that a sandcastle cannot resist the high tide. It is an inevitability that the peace of Christ comes to your life and that peace that you have in Christ with God brings about a peaceful life. So church, we look at the whole because we are in the Lord. We have to stick that landing. It is because we are in the Lord. We can have peace with the, each other and peace within ourselves. Let's pray. Father God, this is a world and an environment that is not known for peace. And yet we are called to it because we have been made new. Would you, by your Spirit, help us to dwell in that newness and to fight against the disposition that is still there in our flesh and to overwhelm it with the Spirit so that we can be a living example of a peaceful life that brings you glory. To that end, we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus.